politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight and struggle for freedom, for life, liberty, property, and everything that matters to our lives. Yes, believe it or not, it is all on the table because we are in this era of the total state. And we need to deconstruct the total state. And that's what we are doing here for a brand new week of broadcast at The Blaze. See our podcast, Daniel Horowitz, your host, Monday, the 16th of January. And it's awfully quiet. Awfully quiet today. I understand it's Martin Luther King Day. But it's a little bit bizarre how Republicans told us, oh my gosh, it's terrible. All these conservatives were holding up the business of the House for four days. And then now they're out all week. I mean, they haven't even chosen the committee chairman or the, the subcommittee chairman and the members of the subcommittees. I thought they had all this great work to do. Well, after a week, now they're back home. Oh, no, it's a district work period. Yeah, I get that. But I thought we had no time to lose with legislation and um, oversight. Look, I, I told you guys, it's not going to come on its own. The deal conservatives made is not self-executing. It was the best we can milk out of that one inflection point. And it gave us a little bit of a foot in the door legislatively and oversight-wise, and I plan on using that to its fullest extent. But yeah, I mean, generally speaking, it doesn't fix the problem that the legislation they've put out so far is pretty meek, and they don't even have, they're not even up to speed on oversight. It's all week. All week is quiet. But this is the lesson we need to use inflection points because clearly what they are doing is making sure people are acculturated to a new normal, a new normal of people dying young, a new normal of not having medicines and food and fuel, a new normal of eggs being, you know, 75 cents an egg. And, oh, it's actually cheap. That gas is, you know, 330, 340 in the dead of the winter. And diesel is, is God knows how much. So we don't fight for anything. We don't demand anything. We need an inflection moment. And it's funny, today, everyone's going to be reflecting on Martin Luther King, but nobody's going to give you the most important lesson of Martin Luther King. And I don't just mean the unpolitically correct version of his private life and everything he did. I'm not even getting into that. I'm just saying, just as straight as an arrow, for what he's being celebrated for, everyone misses the point. And there's actually two points I'd like to bring out before we start today. Change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but comes through continuous struggle. And so we must straighten our backs and work for our freedom. A man can't ride you unless your back is bent. And that's the lesson for us today. It's not going to roll in on its own. You're going to have to struggle for it. We're going to have to create inflection moments. On its own, you're not going to have a presidential candidate just waltz in and change things. And I think this is a lesson the left has internalized. Our side has not internalized. They worked assiduously to create this change they wanted, and now they control everything. We need to make the change to save ourselves, and I think there aren't enough people on our side willing to do that. Which ties into the other point I want to make is about just law. 
we think, well, this is the law, Daniel. You need to amend the Constitution to stop them from amending the Constitution. You need to get the blue states, 34 and then 38 states, to agree to any change before we could have freedom back. And, and this is not a rip on the activists of Convention of the States. I'm, I'm all for that. I'm just saying I don't think we need to wait until we somehow go through the front door to reaffirm what is ours that they changed through the back door. He always, MLK said an individual breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its unjust injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect of the law. And this is what was lost with COVID fascism. When you have something that is unjust, you need to say no. The people need to say no. The local governments need to say no. The state governments need to say no. So, for example, you know, when you have, I don't know, a complete moratorium on producing normal products and locking up our food and energy, states need to say no. Oh, well, Daniel, I thought it's interstate commerce. That's something only the feds could do. Screw it. It's not a suicide pact. Same thing on illegal immigration. You can't have them flood us with criminal aliens. We're like, well, that's for the feds to do. No, we're going to do it on our own. That's a whole other discussion we have to have at some point about the federal courts and everything. But as Sam Adams said, let us remember that if we suffer tamely and lawless attack upon our liberty, we encourage it and involve others in our doom. It is a very serious consideration which should deeply impress our minds that millions yet unborn may be the miserable sharers in the event. Think about that. Now is our time. Now is our moment. Nuremberg trial, by the way, Thankfully, we moved it up a little bit. Hopefully, the release date will be in four weeks. I already got my copy, the author's copy, Rise of the Fourth Reich, Confronting COVID Fascism with a New Nuremberg Trial so that it never happens again. Now is the time when it's we're kicking it when it's down to actually step on the gas pedal, not to walk away from it and say, oh, it's over with. It's not over with. And I want to come back to that. But I want to start today with... Probably the biggest inflection point we have looming. The biggest inflection point we have looming. And that's the debt ceiling. And it's a really good inflection point if played properly. Probably even better than a government funding bill. So, you know, we've talked a lot over the years about using budget leverage, saying, okay, you know, if, if you control the House, they control the Senate. So we say, here's our bill. This is what we're funding. This is what we're not. Take it or leave it. Senate has their bill. We refuse to pass theirs. They refuse to pass ours. And you message it throughout a government shutdown. This is what they're willing to hold up. This is what they're doing to fund tyranny, to fund um, you know, misery and, and COVID fascism, things like that, transgenderism. And however long that needs to drag out, you have to be willing to embrace chaos, embrace inflection points, embrace things that are a little messy, like holding up a speaker's election for four days and then they rush out of Congress from, what was it? They've been out since Thursday. Thursday until 
last Thursday until next Monday night or Tuesday morning. Jeez. But anyway, the point is, the debt ceiling, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, communist, she announced that likely the moment will be sometime in June. So that's not very far away. So we're talking about less than five months. Now, ironically, we're actually going to hit the debt ceiling statutory limit Thursday. $31.4 trillion. But because of uh, different shifting in payments and timelines, they have a few months wiggle room. This is really the big enchilada. This is where I believe the next two years will be won or lost, whether we actually change things. It's not going to roll in on wheels of inevitability on its own. We got to do it. So what is starting to occur with this debt ceiling fight, the grumbling you're seeing from Republicans demonstrates why we are where we are today, why the last 35 years of the GOP has been a fraud, the defense hawks are a fraud, all of these people are frauds. Everyone who runs as a conservative for cutting spending, for limited government, they are frauds. This is why. I, I can't even believe this. It was like yesterday I was writing press releases for Tea Party candidates. This was you know 12 to 13 years ago. And we were floored. We couldn't fathom. The big catchphrase then was $12 trillion in debt. It was shocking how quickly we ran into the double digits, double digits of trillions of debt. <laughs> and I remember at the time, it was like $12 trillion in debt. Because it went up so quickly from, you know, six, seven, eight during those Obama years and the end of the Bush years. But yet... Here we are, $31.4 trillion. Now we know, based on Republicans grumbling about our strategy with the debt ceiling, why we are where we are. Because they were frauds. Republicans controlled the organ of Congress closest to the people, the U.S. House, for 20 of the last 28 years since the 94 revolution. And this is what we've gotten. We went from five, just under five trillion in debt to 31.4 under their watch. And now they don't want to do anything about it. So I want to frame this issue, the importance of it, the strategy, the messaging, the pitfalls, the numbers. We're going to go through this for you know at least a good half of the show and then hopefully move on to some of the news on COVID and the vaccines and fascism. First, folks, we're, we're complaining how basically every product, every industry is controlled by the woke mob. How often could you utilize a vital service that you need, that everyone uses, where you could actually support a company that values life, freedom, family, faith? Very rarely. And in fact, the only one I know is when it comes to mobile devices, Patriot Mobile. They got you covered. Whatever you want, you get the same service. You get to switch with the number you have. The same way you would move around from T-Mobile to Verizon, AT&T, 
why not ditch all three of them and go with America's only Christian conservative wireless provider that offers you the same nationwide coverage? A, they support your values. They actually fund um, lawsuits for liberty and family. So this New Year's resolve to stop supporting those who hate you. The thing about this is if you go to patriotmobile.com slash CR or call them at 972-PATRIOT, so you get free activation today with offer code CR, but also you get performance guarantee. So if you're not happy and you're like, hey, look, you know, this is too tenuous for me. I want to move back, switch back to the three major carriers that hate you. Well, you can do that for free. But I suspect you won't do it because actually, you know, typically with phone more than anything else, you need to talk to people every once in a while. And I can never understand them. When I used to have Verizon, I couldn't understand a word they were saying. This is a 100% US-based, English-speaking, American, uh, probably Patriot, on the line. So you could call 972-PATRIOT or go to patriotmobile.com slash CR to make the switch today. So folks, I want to just say this. You know, by now, the debt has become a joke because it's just past all guardrails that people don't pay attention to it anymore. So this trillion, that trillion. But when you're going from, you know, since 94, 4.8 trillion to 31.4 trillion, or just since 2011, 12 to 13 trillion to, you know, almost tripling it, it's not just a dollar figure. It's not just debt. Number one, it is a big part of the inflation we're suffering today. So, you know, when you're talking about everything in your life that is so doggone expensive, everything, and whatever numbers they show you, 10%, 8%, 11%, that's bull because you know a lot of the vital things have literally doubled and tripled. Meat and chicken and eggs and everything. Your home heating bills for this summer, for or, or the winter. I mean, the air will be in the summer, air conditioning in the summer. But that's not even all of it. That's not even the biggest thing. It's that that number represents the growth of the Fourth Reich. Everything we hate about the global warming agenda, the medical fascism, biomedical tyranny, the experimentation, transhumanism, everything they're doing, that is funded. That's what that funding represents. It's, it represents this unquantifiable, incalculable government control of our lives, inducement of entrenched dependency, distorting of our entire economy, creation of artificial monopolies in every vital industry, and remaking of the national character. That's what's included in that. All these artificial monopolies were created through that. The, de- the dependency of America. You look at the Medicaid and the food stamp numbers. And the distorting of our entire economy. Why we have garbage service, monopolies, higher prices. It's all from the agencies and offices and policies and programs that were spawned from that spending. And this is an important way of framing this issue, because it's not just a dollar. Yeah, we need austerity. We're spending too much money. There's too much debt, too much interest on the debt. And that's true. And obviously, interest on the debt is set to explode. This past year, it was like something like $440 billion, But it's at this pace, it's going to get to $1 trillion very quickly. It's actually going to um, 
you know, at this pace in two years, it could surpass the cost of our military spending, which is certainly very substantial. So when we have an opportunity to hold this hostage and say no, it's everything we hate could be potentially on the table. It could be on the table. So now, right off the bat, what is the debt ceiling? The debt ceiling is a beautiful um, messaging tool because it's an opportunity. See, the, the problem we typically have is that we don't have inflection points. Everything is on autopilot unless you affirmatively pass a new bill to somehow change the trajectory trajectory we're, we're, we're on, which is impossible. Okay, we're, we're never, I mean, I think we all recognize you will never get 218 conservatives in the House, 60 conservatives in the Senate, and a conservative president to sign anything meaningful. <laughs> we'll be dead by then. I mean, that, that's what we're up against. But the thing about the debt ceiling is, until they abolish it, which they haven't yet, they suspend it for short periods of time, they, they increase it by, you know, $2 trillion here and there. But when you're up against it, it's just the opposite. You need all three branches of government to affirmatively agree to issue new debt. Absent that, it's an automatic balanced budget. It's an automatic tool to leverage against everything we hate about government. It's really the only tool that we have that works on our side. And this is really where the deal that conservatives made with McCarthy is going to become so important. Until you now, you're not going to see it. Same stupid, vacuous, one-off legislation. They're not doing much. But this is where it's going to matter with people like Thomas Massey and Chip Roy controlling Rules Committee. What we ultimately do on the debt ceiling. Now, I want to get into the importance of, of, of what is driving the debt and what we should be fighting for. So you have this game being played by some of these congressmen. And I want to talk about it because it literally is the reason why they've been able to perpetuate this fraud of, oh, I'm a fiscal conservative. I want limited government. I want to cut spending. We spend too much money. And then nothing, not only does nothing get cut, but every time they're in power, they spend on massive new programs that weren't even in the pipeline the previous session. Steve Womack of Arkansas. He's an appropriator. He called McCarthy's deal with conservatives on slashing funding simply a non-swimmer. So the deal was to freeze spending, discretionary spending, among other things, but the main thing was to, to freeze non-defense discretionary spending at FY 2022 numbers. Think about that. Okay, it, it, be, be, this is before we talk about, so there's three things. There's military, there's what's called the entitlements and welfare, which mixed into that is Social Security and Medicare, and I know people don't want to consider that welfare, they pay into it. I'm not getting into that, but I'm just saying those are the mandatory programs. And then the discretionary spending, which is non-defense. It's all the bureaucracies. HHS, HUD, EPA, IRS, FBI, you name it, all that. State Department. So he says that capping those programs at FY 2022 levels, which is nothing, 
I mean, that's like <laughs> the crazy levels that we couldn't fathom in the Tea Party era. This is 12 years beyond that. He's like, it's a non-swimmer. I think we'll come to the realization that the 2022 number was rolled off the tongue pretty well, but it's a lift that we're not going to be able to make. Then he said, this whole notion that we're going to fix the fiscal trajectory of this country with food fights on discretionary budgets is intellectually dishonest because that's not where the problem is. The problem is on the mandatory side. It's the entitlements. We're wasting a lot of time and effort if we're just going to focus on discretionary spending. So this is the game they say. When you have something in front of you, they're like, no, 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 it's not that. It's the other thing. Well, then you'll think, okay, but maybe he's for cutting the mandatory programs. And he's saying that's where the real money is. So he's for cutting that. Nope. The Dems are going to eat our lunch. They're going to run commercials saying we're trying to cut Social Security. No, we're trying to save it. We're trying to stabilize it. Okay, so then what are you going to cut? And then there's the other argument they give, which is this is the linchpin for years. The reason we never could cut non-defense spending is because they'll say, the Democrats, in order to make a deal, will say, well, then we have to cut defense spending. And Republicans, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. This is Michael Waltz from Florida. My concern, though, is in order to keep defense numbers, we'd have to have 20 to 25% cut in non-defense. Numbers are getting thrown around, 90 billion, 75 billion. There is nothing in our rules that are written that we have to have that kind of cut. But I worry if you just look at the reality of how these appropriation deals work between defense and non-defense historically, that it could happen, meaning we could cut defense. So they're worried about cutting defense. They're worried about cutting non-defense too much. They're like, you would have to cut it by too much, which like, yeah, you should. That we should all agree. So it's really entitlements, but then entitlements can't be. So this is the fraud. They don't want to cut anything. And again, when we say cut, all we mean is freezing non-defense discretionary at 2022 levels. And they don't want to do that. This is the Republican Party. These are the appropriators. These are the committee chair. These are the leadership. This is what we've had in power ever since Gingrich took over. I mean, before, too. And it was a, it was a false hope. Now, I first want to just explain the technicalities of why they're wrong and then what we need to message headed into this fight. So I, I mentioned when we had him on the show, Russ Vote. he is um, the former OMB director under Trump, really, really good guy. So he, he knew this was going to happen. So what he did is preemptively last month, he put a budget on papers, about 130 pages, and he has line item, but both the top lines of each uh, department, but then exactly how he's going to achieve certain levels. And mind you, it's modest. No one's talking about immediately balancing the budget. Nobody's talking about paying off the $31 trillion in debt. This is simply to have a path that if you follow it, you'll have a reasonable expectation to get close to a balanced budget, perhaps, if everything goes right, in 10 years from now. Okay, so anything less than that, you are a complete fraud. Okay, this, this, is, this is what it would take. 
So what his budget did, and he put it on to paper, it, it, it showed there's three fallacies I want to go over with what they're saying. So one thing is they, they look down on cutting non-defense discretionary spending. Like, ah, it doesn't amount to anything. But this is, what I, this is why I told you it's not just about the dollar figure of the, of the public expenditure. It's the dependency it creates. It's the distorting our economy. It's the creating artificial monopolies. It's remaking the character of the nation. It's the woke and weaponization. It's the quality of life. In other words, COVID cost more money than anything imaginable. That was created through programs and agencies. We've been talking about this at DARPA and HHS and, and uh, the chemical and biologics program, all this stuff. It was created through, through the discretionary spending. Meaning, as much as I don't like food stamps and Medicaid and, and this stuff, but it's not, that's not the Fourth Reich. It's just too much dependency. In the case of Medicaid, it helps distort and deplete healthcare. It's not a good program. Food stamps doesn't really do much. It just costs a lot of money and creates a lot of dependency. It's the, it's the bureaucracies. The discretionary spending is funding the Fourth Reich that got us to this position of scarcity, of biomedical security state, of tyranny. And then also, that has a fiscal cost. So they're, they're, they're missing that. You can't look at it like a line item on a piece of paper. That's number one. But they don't want to cut that. They don't want to cut that because they agree with it. Then there's number two, which is the defense stuff. And, and this we, we talked about a significant portion of last week. That nobody is advocating that we take our defense spending from, what is that, eight, $850 billion now and take it down to $500 billion. We're not suggesting that. What we're suggesting is that you just freeze the rate of increase. Okay, so if you look at votes budget, he does achieve like $355 billion in savings over 10 years versus the baseline. And if you look, I have the chart in the article today. It goes up every year, just much slower than they want, but it's going up slower after a gargantum increase. And what we noted is that if you actually orient our military towards the proper priorities hardware-wise, deployment-wise, mission-wise, and foreign aid, too, gets thrown in that. And I understand that's part of the State Department's budget, but inevitably does, and in the case of Ukraine, did creep into DOD's budget. You'll at least have enough to have a great military without cutting anything important, maybe even increasing it. And he actually does that in his budget by cutting that stuff, and you're just slowing the rate of increase. That's all we're trying to do. But if you're not willing to do that, then yeah. If you're not willing to shoot that much of a hostage, then we'll never get anything done. Kay Granger, the jerk-off chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee who by the way, is only still in power because Trump endorsed her against a really good guy. There have been reports that House Republicans support cutting our national defense. Let me be clear. The House Republican does not, this House Republican does not support this position. Her definition of national defense is an unreformed, endless increase in spending for a woke and broke military 
that is a bigger threat to our privacy, our security, and especially when you get into the bioterrorism that they have committed and will continue to commit against us that overshadows anything we're scared about with North Korea and Iran and Al-Qaeda, well, that ain't national defense. So that's the other big lie of standard conservative Inc. loser Republican in terms of the budget. We have to be willing to have that fight. And then number three is, yes, on paper, two-thirds of spending is the so-called programs, the mandatory entitlement. Now, but here, here's the um, here's this here's the sleight of hand. Here's the sleight of hand. So, Social Security and Medicare, whatever you think of them, and Medicare is a horrible program, destroys healthcare. We really need to first reform healthcare wholesale before you're able to do anything structurally that makes sense with Medicare. But for now, it's too much of a heavy lift. No one's he, Russ vote in his budget doesn't touch it. Those are the two programs that are perceived by the public to be entitlements. I'm entitled to it because I paid payroll taxes. So fine. Th- that is true that those two are the single largest expenditures as one item. And they account for roughly half of the spending of what's called mandatory programs. But they're misleading because there's another half to it that is a significant amount of money, and that's Medicaid and other mandatory programs, which is all the welfare programs, the government pensions, you know, government, you know, all the bureaucracy pensions. And that, you better believe, needs to be trimmed down. It needs to be trimmed down. Those items, meaning mandatory spending minus those two programs, Medicare and Social Security, are projected to cost $11.8 trillion under the current 10-year baseline. So that's where vote is going to achieve several trillion in savings by reforming and cutting some of those programs. If you don't believe in that, you're not a conservative, but they don't. So that's where, that's where the money is going to be. It's not endlessly increasing the military, you know, infinitely at that level, shifting the priorities of the military, taking a meat cleaver as much as we can to the non-defense discretionary, and then working on, you know, welfare reforms for those other mandatory programs. Those are going to be the three legs that you need to pursue if you want to achieve a balanced budget. And those are the three things that the GOP really opposes. So this is going to be a fight. It's locked and loaded because the conservatives are adamant about this. They're not going to budge, and they now have the leverage. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Now, let me just get to the messaging, and then we'll get to how this mechanically looks, let's say in June when this comes down the pipeline. So messaging-wise, to me, the most important thing is we are going to cut those government agencies that are tyrannical and destroy your quality of life. To me, the most important thing, even than the welfare, like I said before, is the non-defense discretionary. Honestly, a lot of defense spending too needs to be cut, DARPA and all that stuff. But... 
to me, this is the leverage. Everything we hate with government, because I'm with you. A lot of you are probably thinking, I've given up on the balanced budget. I don't care anymore. This is the government. I, we're not going to save it. I'm not patriotic in the sense that I'm trying to save a broken government. We need national divorce. I understand that. But this is the best leverage because it's going to force a situation where, you know, what we call the Fourth Reich items, the woke and weaponization that affects the quality of our life, the um, you know prosperity of our life, the freedom of our life. That's what I want cut, even more so than like food stamps or something. I agree. But this is the best way of achieving that. What's going to happen is now that we have control of the Rules Committee, Let's, I'm just going to make it up. Let's say the deadline is June 10th. So what's going to happen in, in, the, in, the, in the weeks and days before then, our guys are going to pass a plan and say, okay, we're going to allow the government to, to issue X number of more debt in re- that's going to be in the bill. We're going to raise the debt, so debt limit, but we're going to do it by getting rid of the debt. And here's our plan, you know, along the lines of Russ Vote's budget. That's kind of the contours of what the Freedom Caucus is going to put forward. Okay, and and in the scheme of things, it's very modest. But what I'm telling you is where it's not modest is in taking a meat cleaver to the woke and weaponized bureaucracies. More than the dollar amount in the short run, it's the policies and then the dollar amount in the long run that that matter. So they're going to fund that. They're going to say, here it is. Senate's going to balk. They're now going to have the moral high ground to say, look, we tried. Then what they're going to do is, as you approach June 10th, people think that there's an automatic apocalypse, like, like a shutdown. That's not how it works. What it means is at that deadline, we need to start issuing some sort of debt to pay 100% of everything our government now wants to pay for. But we don't want to pay for it. So let me just give you rough figures how this works. I'm, I'm going through this in great detail so there's no misunderstanding when, when you hear these same lies, all these like GOP establishment stuff like you heard during the speaker's fight. So roughly right now, and, and really it's more relevant to look at it as monthly expenditures, but I don't have those figures like you know on the tip of my tongue. So I'm going to view it as an annual figure um, but so, so you can just get the idea. It's not like we don't have they don't have any money. They do. There's about 5.9 trillion in spending under the current proposed budget. And the revenue the government gets mainly from taxes is about about 4.9 trillion. They're actually getting a lot of revenue. The system seems to still work and that's part of the problem. Get a lot of revenue. It's flowing in. The revenue is actually soaring. So believe it or not, I mean Based on where we are, it should be the deficit should be even worse, but it's only a trillion is the deficit. But that kind of helps us in this sense. So you have 4.9 trillion worth of revenue that you could spend. It's only that latter trillion to get to 5.9 that you need to get to all that spending, which we actually don't want, and we would rather starve it. See, used to be you cut taxes, you starve the beast. But like I told you, taxes is no longer the big issue because guess what? They just do deficit spending. They, they print money. But you can't issue more debt. 
the debt ceiling is a is a built-in mechanism that they can't do this. Now, guess what happens? They're going to say automatically we're going to default on our debt and that's not fiscally responsible. You're causing us to default. But here's the deal. Default so so there's there's two issues. There's defaulting and then there's not having money just to fund things that are viewed as vital and necessary. So let's go through the first thing. Defaulting on debt. The debt is and again, this is more relevant monthly figures, but I'm going to give you I'm just giving you top line, 442 billion. 442 billion. So we have 4.9 trillion in revenue, the 442 billion that that should be paid first. Done. <laughs> they have the money, they will pay it unless they purposely don't. That is a lie. So that is done. No default. Never happen. Will never happen. Cuz you have all that tax revenue. You don't need to issue debt for that. Okay, then you get to Social Security, Medicare, military. Those, 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 those are the top three, I'd say. Social Security, Medicare, and military. Okay? So, again, I don't have the exact numbers offhand. But I'm trying to rack my brain. Social Security is like a trillion... Medicare and the military are both like in the 800 billions. So you're going to be talking about 2.7 trillion or so. Okay. 2.7 trillion. Then the 442 billion for the interest on the debt. So take you a little bit over three, 3.1. Let's say 3.1 trillion. Okay. Now I have still 1.8 trillion left. You could work on Medicaid, some of the programs, certain operations, foreign policy. This is what we should be doing. This is what anyone would have to do. A private citizen. You're going to have to make cuts. You're going to have to make eliminations. This is how we start having a conversation of what is actually vital. And in order to punctuate that, the plan of people like Chip Roy and Thomas Massey would be that they would initially have their bill to take care of this. Okay, we're going to raise the debt limit, but have this long-term budget in place. Then, alongside that, as we reach the hours ticking down to that, they will pass a law of debt prioritization and say, you have to first, the first tranche of money has to pay, you know, your monthly revenue has to pay the debt on interest, military, um, Social Security, Medicare, down the line. So this is going to be a really good messaging fight that our guys will be able to message and actually legislate accordingly. Something we've never had the ability to do because typically, you know, they, they create these false choices and we're like, no, go prioritize, and they don't bring that bill to the floor. So this is how you have the fight. And we'll, we'll, we'll obviously build up to this in the coming months, but this is our once-in-a-lifetime chance to actually bring it to the brink enforce this discussion like nothing else before you don't need a constitutional amendment you don't need 38 states you don't need all three branches this is the fight that we should be willing to have as long as it needs to go on see here's the deal the longer it goes on the longer their programs and agencies aren't getting funded 
So, all right, you're getting zero now. Right now, you're getting zero funding. If you want our plan where your agency gets funded at 80%, then go along with us. It's 80 or zero. But watch for us to get fragged and watch for all these nerdy conservative talk shows. So at the time, they'll get scared. Oh, this is so scary. We're going to default. I'm all for conservatism, but this is just not the way to do it. Watch for that to happen, by the way. But folks, this is the best we can do. And this is the truth about the debt ceiling I wanted you to have in your back pocket months ahead of time. This is what needs to be done. This is the single biggest tool we have to force not just spending cuts in the abstract that might you know, make your eyes gloss over at this point, but to actually structurally tie the hands of the Fourth Reich. And I just wanted to sew this up together by saying that the most important thing about this is bringing this to the consciousness of the American people. You need a cathartic inflection point. Without that, the problem is people just keep going on as if this is normal. It appears that, you know, we're back to normal. COVID's over, even though it's worse than ever. It's worse than ever, the biomedical tyranny and everything they plan on doing, but people aren't activated. Oh, yeah, you know, this is just how it is with inflation. People just go on because what are you going to do? No one gives them another option. This is the way to really, really force it. And again, the beauty of this is that while this is going on at a federal level, it could force a fight at a state and local level to start making changes as well. Unfortunately, legislatures are at a session then, which is stupid, but you know how I feel on that. We need to change that. But this is, this is the best we can do. So I'm just gearing up for all these fights to do as best as we could do. But obviously the most important thing with all of this, when we talk about defunding and blocking funding for the Fourth Reich, it's the Joseph Mengele Biomedical Experimentation Surveillance Tyranny State. And it's truly shocking where we are. Right now, we're at an inflection moment where there is so much information and so much died suddenly coming out that we rapidly are reaching a tipping point where the shots, I I do believe, are going to be ended. I'm not sure exactly how long we're going to be in this stage and how long it's going to take. I do think we're we're getting there now, finally. Whereas before I didn't, you know, slowly they admitted. Uh, you have Paul Offit out there saying, "Yeah, you know, the bivalent stuff doesn't work. This doesn't work." Um, heck, you you have New York City Health Department. This is unbelievable. Putting out. Talk about idolatry, putting out on Twitter that, where is this? Omicron subvariant XBB15 now accounts for 73% of all sequenced COVID 19 cases. XBB15 is the most transmissible form we ever know to date. Each one is, by the way, and may be more likely to infect people who have been vaccinated or already had COVID. Now, the, the last part they threw in because, you know, for cover, but they literally are admitting their negative efficacy. The viral immune escape, they're admitting it. And then their next tweet is, you know, getting vaccinated and getting the updated booster is still the best way to protect yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's an idolatry that, that boggles the mind, but they're admitting that. It's out in the open. And then obviously... We had Friday this press release from CDC where they admitted 
from their vaccine safety data link. This is just like a data link with um, certain, uh, maybe it's Medicare or something. It's not like a uh, pharmacovigilance like V-Safe and VAERS, but it's their other thing that they showed that people 65 and older who received the bivalent Pfizer shot were more likely to have an ischemic stroke in the 21 days following vaccination compared to the 22 to 20 to 44 days following vaccination. So that, that, that was huge news. They dumped it on a Friday headed into a holiday weekend. But then a couple hours later, CDC came to, came out and was like, no, no, we looked into it very comprehensive and there's no change in vaccination practices recommended. So within, within a few hours, they, they just had it covered. So again, they're going to continue playing this game. But the the point is, it's getting out there. And by the way, notice how they say the, the safety signal is how much more likely you are to have a stroke within the first 21 days of the shot. Now, you would expect the second half of my sentence, the control group, to be versus people who didn't get the freaking shot. No, it's 21 days within the shot versus 22 to 40, 44 days within getting the shot. So the reality is this thing is causing strokes for many time periods among those who are vaccinated. Meaning there's no unvaccinated control group. So this is what these clowns did. But the point is it's reaching a tipping point. But if you notice, the policies aren't changing. The policy, oh yeah, these were kind of problem, yeah. Problematic. Just like everyone admitted lockdowns don't work, but it's not like statutorily in most places we've forbidden them. Everyone, it's out in the open, masks don't work, but they're still required in most hospitals in many settings, and they brought them back in schools in some, some blue cities and will in the future. So we're up to the next tranche. Yeah, the vaccines kind of weren't so safe and effective and kind of were a dud. Maybe caused some problems too. A, they're going to certainly undersell the issue. It's not a matter of, you know, one or two things. So they're they're doing what's called an, uh, you know, a limited hangout. A lot of people have made this point. It's not my point. Um, over the weekend, where you channel that pressure to l- release that valve into a narrow channel. Yeah, you're right. There, there's problems. It's myocarditis. Sometimes a stroke. Really, there's over fourteen thousand things this thing could do to you in every organ system affecting every inch of your body, short-term, long-term immune system, who knows what. But that's what they're going to do. They're going to narrowly channel it, but then they're not going to change the policies. I mean, do you know how bad the Fourth Reich is? I, I put this out on Twitter today as a story. Um, Braden Roten, one of our listeners, sent this to me, that there is this hospital... In um, in Huntington, West Virginia, Red State, we have it on. This is a memo that was circulated. I, I mean, it doesn't seem like it was ultimately implemented, but it was a trial balloon. It, it is written up on the letterhead of the hospital to the staff requiring yellow stars, yellow stars for those to be identified for not getting vaccinated so they know to wear a mask. Okay, fine. They don't say yellow. They say gold. But you get what I mean. It's unbelievable. This is uh, Cable Huntington Hospital, or Cabell. It's the name of the county there. I don't know how to pronounce it, but that's where Huntington is. Sorry for those of you who live there locally. 
January 12th from the health director of the hospital. CMS and TJC standard requires we have policies and procedures in place for healthcare workers who are not fully vaccinated. This must include at a minimum a process of ensuring the implementation of additional uh, precautions intended to mitigate the transmission and spread of COVID-19 for all staff who are not fully vaccinated for COVID-19 to, and to help identify those who are required to wear a mask. We are requiring a gold star sticker to be placed on the employee's ID badge. This is a real thing. Now I hear in the end they didn't implement it, but that was a real letter. So the policies continue. They literally just admit, I mean, even they've known for years that it didn't stop transmission, and now there's negative efficacy. It's everywhere. So even if you would cling to the lie that it works against critical illness, which it doesn't, and certainly not with these variants, you would have to admit that that you're literally stigmatizing people for something that is the opposite is true. And also, if the patient wants that, the patient is vaccinated. Right? So how does it affect them? The opposite, like every blood libel, the opposite is true. Their stuff, you can only be affected by someone who has it and sheds on you. Because there's no such thing as protection yet against the shedding vaccine. But in their mind, there's protection against the pathogen, which is their vaccine. So the policies aren't changing. The Fourth Reich mentality has not changed. You know, I want to play here just for a minute. I don't know where this is, but it's um somewhere in New Zealand. I don't know which broadcaster. Our buddy Wittgenstein has this on his uh, Twitter. And they have this news clip of, of this guy they brought on talking about the need to just, you know, what is it with these hospital workers not wanting to get the vaccines? Take a listen to this uh, roughly minute clip here. Project Viewer, you will know that we are very pro-vaccination, pro-booster. Um, I think we were pretty surprised to see that result today. 57% of New Zealanders, according to this poll, keen for those unvaccinated nurses to come back. We need, we need the staff, but I, for one, I wouldn't want a family member being treated by an unvaccinated nurse. I'm the same. I, I'm sorry. I just want to know that my healthcare workers are vaccinated and that they're all in the same camp. Just for God's sake, get the jab, go back to work, <laughs> take one for the team. <laughs> you know, every now and then we have to do something we don't want to do. <laughs> but your country's calling. Get the jab and go back. I don't care what your rationale is behind. Your country's saying we need you. So go and do something. It was like me fielding under the helmet. Oh, <laughs> Right. Did it work? Did you, did you win? So, folks, you heard that. Take one for the team. They, they literally know it doesn't work. It's dangerous. I don't care. You're going to do it anyway. That's kind of where we are. It's not a matter of any study or any. Nothing matters. Yeah, it kills everyone, and that's why you better get it. Fourth Reich. So this is number one why Steve and I wrote the book, The Rise of the Fourth Reich. This mentality, this sense of immorality needs to be extirpated from culture, law, society, and policy, which it's not. Everyone running the government in DOD and HHS in charge of the relevant agencies, they still share this sentiment. This is what they believe in. To the extent they're making concessions now, it's because they have to release the pressure because, I mean, it's crazy. 
you saw the Rasmussen poll where 33% of registered Democrats who are going to be very inclined to run interference and protection for the shots because it's become such an ideological issue, 33% said, yeah, I think I know someone who died from the shot. And 6% of them, thats a, I mean, 6% said we were, I was severely or significantly or experienced a major side effect. About a third said a minor side effect, but 6%. And that roughly tracks with the 7.7% from VSAFE. Um, and you got to believe that there's a certain amount that are so ideal, because this is all Democrat voters. So a certain amount of them are going to be so ideologically committed, they're not going to admit it. They won't tell a pollster that or they'll lie to themselves. So this needs to be extirpated, but then also as a matter of policy, the entire DARPA martial law gain of function thing needs to be stopped immediately. This is what you need a debt ceiling fight for. Not just the debt, but something like this. But we're, we're funding endlessly, endless funding of this. I want to read to you an article that all of you should be aware of. And you need to call your congressman about this. These policies need to be reversed. Along with repeal of the NCVIA, that's the 1986 vaccine um, indemnity law, the PREP Act, the other transact- transactions authority for the DOD to basically experiment upon us without regulatory structure, and then emergency use authorization. Another thing we need to ban is martial law. I mean, what do you mean ban martial law? This is a Newsweek article. Thomas Massey recently uh, tipped me off about this. or I, I knew about this, but he reminded me of it. Newsweek article from March 18th, 2020. So that, that those critical few days where everyone was panicking. Exclusive, inside the military's top secret plans if coronavirus cripples the government. Coronavirus is new territory which the military itself is vulnerable and the disaster scenario is being contemplated, including the possibility of widespread domestic violence as a result of food shortages, yada yada. Above top secret contingency plans already exist for what the military is supposed to do if all the constitutional successors are incapacitated. Standby orders were issued more than three weeks ago. Standby orders were issued. This is them talking in March 18th. So, you know, this is the end of February to ready these plans, not just to protect Washington, but also to prepare for the possibility of some form of martial law. According to new documents and interviews with military experts, the various plans codenamed Octagon, Freejack, and Zodiac are the underground laws to ensure government continuity. They are so secret that under these extraordinary plans, devolution could circumvent the normal constitutional provisions for government succession. And military commanders could be placed in control around America. Now, this is interesting. We're in new territory, says one senior officer, the entire post-9-11 paradigm of emergency planning thrown out the window, the officer jokes, jokes in the kind of morbid humor characteristic of this slow-moving disaster that America had better learn who General Terrence J. O'Shaughnessy is. Terrence J. O'Shaughnessy. He is the combatant, combatant commander for the United States and would, in theory, be in charge if Washington were eviscerated. So read the whole article there. Now, 
at that time, that week, O'Shaughnessy was on cable news talking about, you know, coronavirus and the emergency and everything. This is a Newsweek article that they had access to above top secret plans. This needs to be banned immediately. I mean, every day I'm going to issue marching orders, uh, action items, and I don't see anyone else doing this. This is our time. But these are the sorts of things that we're going to have to sort out. We're going to have to sort out with oversight and legislation, but also the debt ceiling. Here's another interesting article from Friday. This is from Vox.com. Congress's bipartisan deal to spend billions more fighting HIV and malaria abroad. On December 23rd, while many of us were doing our last-minute shopping, Congress passed the uh, $1.7 trillion spending package. Tucked into the package was a surprisingly large boost in funding for something that doesn't usually generate headlines, global health programs. So, you had Mitch McConnell agreed to continue the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, an international organization that provides financing for country-level programs like drug distribution in developing countries, saw the funding from the U.S. grow from $1.56 billion to $2 billion, 28% increase. Funding for USAID's global health programs, which include nutrition programs, efforts against infectious diseases, and more rose from $700 million to $900 million. And the CDC's Global Public Health Protection Div- Division, which works abroad to strengthen health systems, saw a $40 million boost as well. This They literally funded the Joseph Mengele organizations. You read Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s book, and this is literally what has killed so many Africans. Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. They're bipartisan. Global health funding has a number of Republican champions, like Hal Rogers, the outgoing ranking member of Appropriations Subcommittee handling foreign aid. Michael McCall, who he's now the chair of the Foreign House Foreign Affairs Committee, and Representative Ann Wagner, McCall's deputy on that committee. The Global Fund has been one of the most successful programs in history of government, said Lindsey Graham. This is what we have for Republicans. And by the way, Ann Wagner represents like the strong evangelical social conservative. This is for years what social conservatives have been deluded into supporting as a pro-life initiative, you know, saving AIDS in Africa, when in fact they were funding probably the creation of it, but certainly these dangerous therapeutics, dangerous vaccines, self-spreading vaccines, this... This is my concern, that they're going to release the valve. Yeah, yeah, the COVID shots are done because they milked them to death. But the RSV shots, the, all the dozens of other similar technologies, both the mRNA technology, crappy vaccines, dangerous vaccines, and the pathogens that they seem to purposely create alongside the vaccines as part of that gain of function. Remember, it's two sides of the same coin the creation of the pathogen, the creation of the so-called vaccine, that's con- that's going to continue. Even if, if tomorrow we have a new story, yeah, it, it's not working anymore, it's problems, we're suspending all COVID shots. And we're certainly not there yet. But even if we had that, we're not done with this by a long shot. They're just getting getting started. Every program under chemical biologics program under DARPA, under Defense Threat 
uh, reduction agency under HHS, it needs to be prohibited with a private cause of action of, among American citizens that are harmed by this to sue. On February 22nd of last year, McCall and Barbara Lee, then the chair of appropriate subs- the, the relevant appropriate subcommittee, organized a letter from 137 members of the House to President Biden asking for robust and increased three-year U.S. pledge to the Global Fund. This is, this is Bill Gates's cesspool. 21 of the signatories were Republicans, including not just moderates, but Trump loyalists like Elise Stefanik and Joe Wilson. Well, I mean, they're not, they think they're conservative. They're leftists. We knew that. Can you imagine that? After everything, I understand in the past, you think you're funding A, you think it's great. I get it. You were stupid, but this was la- th- th- this was eleven months ago. They didn't realize. How do you not realize it? Of course they realized it. Of course they realized it. Guy Reschelother, he's another Republican signator. Brian Fitzpatrick. I'm just looking through the the names here. Got to dig out the Republican names, but. You know, it's full of them. Full of them. Ilan Omar, of course, is on there too. But this is disgusting. Absolutely, positively disgusting. These same Republicans. Full of them. Adam Kinzinger, of course, was on there. But remember, Elise Stefanik. She is the conference chair, the number four, big Trump supporter. This is the problem. We can't even get Republicans off more funding of the Fourth Reich. Joe Katko, John Katko, I mean, he's gone, but um, Chris Stewart of Utah voted for gay marriage, by the way. I mean, full of them. So we got a lot of work to do, folks. David Rouser of North Carolina. I remember I tried to defeat him in a primary. Years ago. So the point is, the debt ceiling is going to be our biggest point of leverage. And I hope, you know, the book is going to come out February, and we're going to have a list of demands in that debt ceiling deal. That is when we have to take a meat cleaver to this. Human life itself depends on it. But anyway, we're just about out of time, and I'm also losing my voice. Sorry, a little bit congested today. Um, Just a minor cold. So let me know what you feel is a top action item. Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com is the email. At RM Conservative on Twitter. Till tomorrow, God bless you all. And thank you for listening.